Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Northwoods Distilled Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Nick Prouza. I'm Dan Altos. And I'm Marvin Nemi. We thank you for joining us for our first episode. And I'm going to start out today just giving a brief introduction as to why we're doing this and the way that the episodes are going to be constructed. So we're, we started the Northwoods Distilled Podcast during the, or the, the idea for it, during the height of COVID. Dan and I were having a phone conversation and talking about how badly all the small businesses were hurting because of all the COVID restrictions and policies. And now that the pandemic is over, a lot of businesses didn't make it. And the ones that did are suffering from being short-staffed. We have inflation issues, which affect consumer behavior. And another piece is we all are from the Midwest. We all love where we're from. The Northwoods region, for those who are not familiar, comprises northern Wisconsin, northern Michigan, and northern Minnesota. And so for each episode, we're going to pick a community in that area, and we're going to highlight four different sections to promote small businesses, cultural awareness, uh, adventure, this as a region that should be a destination for people to visit, and just making memories in general. Our first section we're going to talk about is we call Explore, and that's the rich history. We cover local historical events, people, and places. Some communities are going to surprise you with their involvement in modern history. Our second section is entitled Live Like the Locals. We discuss local events, traditions, and small businesses. Then we go on to devour the cuisine. We will review local restaurants, cafes, and mom and pop pop hole in the walls. And then last, we talk in the section entitled Imbibe, In the Spirits. If you've ever seen Booze Traveler, the TV show on the Travel Channel, this is the Midwest version of that. We'll tell you about local bars, breweries, wineries, distilleries, and local favorite cocktails. So for our first episode this week, we're going to be talking about the Iron Mountain Kingsford area in Upper Michigan. We selected this area um, for the reason that Dan and I have been visiting this area since 2006, I think. And my family is from the, the area there. My, my dad and his siblings grew up in the area. He's now retired there. And then Marv is from originally Republic, now yes. Nagani, which are right up the road. The yeah, road. it was about an hour away. Yeah, the, the road being M95, which cuts right through the middle of the UP, basically. Yeah, the UP is pretty sparse. So when you grow up in the UP, you tend to get to know all the locations. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing for a Uper to drive two and a half hours to go somewhere and it doesn't phase them. Like, that's just how far you drive to go to that place. It's just the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I don't know if you guys have, being it's the first episode, if there's anything else you want to say before we get into the history section. Should we just start off by giving them the real quick overview that Iron Mountains, obviously, as you mentioned, a city in the U.S. state of Michigan, population in 2020 census was 7,500 people. And uh, it was affectionately named after the iron ore that's found in the region. And it has a, a twin city, I guess you'd call it Kingsford. Iron Mountain and Kingsford run directly into each other. There's actually one street, Woodward Avenue, that is in both cities. Like one side of the street is Kingsford, one side of the street is Iron Mountain. And so we're going to be talking about both communities. And I don't remember, Dan, what's the Kingsford population off the top of your head? It is... Or off the top of your Wikipedia. Yeah, off the top of my head, for sure. (laughs) Um, The reason I bring it up is because 
Iron Mountain in itself isn't that large of a community, but Iron Mountain and Kingsford combined is, I believe, the third or fourth largest community in the UP. Yeah, so about twelve or 13,000 people total between the two of them um, as of the 2020 census. Iron Mountain about 7,500 and Kingsford about a uh, little over 5,000. And if I'm not mistaken, Marquette's the largest community in the UP, followed by Escanaba. And then... That's correct. Iron Mountain... Houghton Hancock and the Sioux, Sioux St. Marie, all kind of take turns shifting around who's in that third spot. Yeah, and it, it depends. I mean, Houghton Hancock area has the college. So yeah. does Marquette. So the population does change quite a bit in those areas. Yeah. So um, in general, if if memory serves, it's usually the fourth largest community. I'll, I'll look actually while we're chatting here and see where it sits right now. Iron Mountain is by far... The older of the two between Iron Mountain and Kingsford. Yes. You know, and beginning in the late 1800s. And we're actually going to talk about the origins of Kingsford, the town. Um, yeah. Kingsford came about around the 1920s, a little bit later, where it was actually declared a city or township, if you will. But yeah, the Iron Mountain is situated right next to an iron rich uh, mountain, if you will. Is it? Not that high of a mountain. I guess they call it a cliff. Some, some well, research the, calls it a cliff. A the the a... funny thing is, is the town is Iron Mountain, but the mountain is actually called Pine Mountain. And Millie Hill is on the back of Pine Mountain. Yeah. Yeah. I guess do we... Let's st- talk about the mining first, because that's the oldest piece. Yeah, starting And then we can go into Henry, Henry Ford and Kingsford and, and the Vagabonds, and then we can talk about World War II and go from there. Sure. So let's start with mining. So, you know, really Iron Mountain sits adjacent to what's called the Chapin Iron Mine. And um, that was found in the very late 1800s by two guys. It was sort of a stroke of luck. They were out in the woods looking for an area like this, and they had sunk a bunch of mining shafts and didn't have any luck. And right at the last minute before they were about to give up, they ended up, um, you know, finding some. Something that I thought was interesting, there is a Captain John Wicks that was sent <laughs> up yeah. after that after that mine was discovered um, in search of a place to set up camp. And so uh, that, that little bit of history, um, you know, I think is pretty interesting. Also on top of that, uh, just because it was such an iron-rich area, they couldn't use standard compasses. They had to develop a solar compass just to map out the entire area which I thought was very interesting as well. Yeah, and so one thing that is, you know, very common in Iron Mountain is sort of this Cornish history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look back, Cornish, meaning people from Cornwall in England, were historically very, very much involved in mining in England. And there was a migration in the mid-1800s where many of them left, and we're headed out to Australia, South America, um, you know, the United States or, or North America um, in various parts. And they became involved in mining in all of these other countries. And so they were very well known for uh, copper mining and iron mining back in England and then carried that with them. Um, they were known as Cousin Jacks when they moved out into the universe outside of England. And certainly that was a huge part of the diaspora that ended up making up population in Iron Mountain. Oh, very much so. I mean, it's spread throughout the entire UP. But Iron Mountain being so close to the Wisconsin border, you had a lot of influx in that area for sure, especially 
with the discovery of a formidable industry at the time. And by finally looking further into it, investing money into it, they were able to run rail all the way up there. And once you have rail during them times in a certain area, you're you're looking at a big influx. And that's super interesting because that was really a big game changer, right? Before that, there was a long period where they had to bring natural resources back either on wagon um, over rough terrain, which like we have talked about that, but it's muddy, it's rocky, it's full of, you know, heavily forested areas or they it's had... It's buried in snow for it's like buried in snow. five months of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is awful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, or they had to put things on ships, which made, you know, the, the port side of all of these areas uh, pretty important too, but you still had to get it to the water yeah. from Iron Mountain well, and I it mean, wasn't close there either. A time frame far before the Mackinac Bridge even existed. I mean, the way to get up there was through Wisconsin. And, and the rail system was very pivotal for that. I mean, it, it brought so many people there and interest to the area. And many Upers, myself included. I, I live in Wisconsin now, but I was born up there and I've lived there off and on. Uh, agree that that Mackinac Bridge should have never been built. <laughs> <laughs> no. there's, there's a cultural component, and we didn't put this on the list to discuss, but it, it's worth mentioning. There's a cultural component that because the UP was physically detached from southern Michigan for so long... The culture evolved on its own and upper Michigan residents who are called Upers uh, identify as their own unique yeah. group. They, they separate themselves from people from downstate and they actually uh, not affectionately refer to people from lower Michigan as trolls because they live below the bridge. For sure, for yeah. sure. But the, the cool thing about Iron Mountain, though, I mean, bringing it back to the specific location we're talking about is it's it's fairly got to be a diverse place over the years because of its location. It's only, what, two hours away from Green Bay. I mean, the drive alone isn't that bad. I mean, now you get modern highways and things like that. It, it's a pretty quick trip Yeah, yeah between the two. So you, you get a lot of different uh, individuals that frequent the area. So therefore, you get a wider range of diversity in, in the local cuisine, the and the area itself. Yeah, we'll talk about later. There's a odd amount of Italians for where Iron Mountain is located. It makes no it makes no sense that they would be there. There's, but they are. There's an interesting part to that. We'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So, um, what else do we, is there anything else we want to discuss about the mine? Well, let's maybe give a timeline, Dan. I'm sure you have the dates as far as when the mines were open, when they closed, and and. Kind of how that all shook out. Yeah, sure. So we're talking about 1879 when the mine was discovered. Um, they, they got that up and running, obviously. And then uh, between then and the early 1900s, about 1910, you started to see people coming in to the area to, to work those mines. Um, during that time, they did build something interesting. And Marv, I don't know, you probably know more about this than I do, but there there is a huge... Uh, mining shaft pump uh, in Iron Mountain called the Cornish Pump. And again, going back to our Cornish migration, named after the style of pump that was used by the same people in England who migrated to the area. And it was the biggest one in the world, I think, right, when it was made? Uh, of, of its kind. Of its kind. I think, it's, kind, I think, I think it still is. Still is, yeah. yeah. So, um, so something pretty interesting there. I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to talk about there, but... Um, that pump ended up getting moved around uh, a couple times and was in operation helping with the mining until about 1932. 
Um, and much, it's very common for communities in the UP. And in our third episode, we're going to talk about the Keweenaw Peninsula of the UP. And uh, like many communities up there, as mining went away, either the mines got tapped out or people moved away and for a various number of reasons, the communities obviously had to shift uh, in order to survive. And for a lot of the UP, part of that was logging. And tourism plays a hand in certain areas. But in Iron Mountain, as luck would have it, and I think there is a certain amount of luck there, as the mining was shifting out in the early 1900s, Dan, it sounds like 1920s, 30s, mm-hmm. um, that's when a name that everyone will recognize, Henry Ford, comes into the fold. And Ford was kind of in full swing, starting to manufacture his vehicles then. And vehicles back then, automobiles back then, required actually quite a bit of wood to manufacture. Yes. And so he needed to find a lot of wood. And like I mentioned, logging is was huge in the UP, especially yeah. to supplement communities as mining dialed down. And so uh, Henry had a cousin, E.J. Kingsford, I think was EJ right. was his he first was name. he was uh, related no, to his wife. His yeah, Ford's wife was or no, Ford's Ford. cousin was EJ's wife. Yes, <laughs> Kingsford's wife. Kingsford's yeah. wife was Ford's cousin. There yeah. we go. He was a cousin-in-law, and they uh, were in that area. And between talking between the two of them, there was around 1919 and 1920 Ford acquired huge swaths of land up in the UP. Well, that's the thing at that time. I mean, the mining industry really opened the doors for that area because it said, hey, this is a viable region of resources that can be used in manufacturing. Kingsford's wife was very close to Ford. And Ford, you know, utilized that as, hey, man, you have something up here I can get a piece of. And it's not going to break the bank either. He bought, I think it was 313,000 acres yeah, to yeah, produce lumber. I mean, you're talking about uh, the Fliver car, which is a Model T car, but it's an inexpensive car is what it was. That's where you get the name from, is that it was just a mass-produced, cheap car. But even though it was considered cheap, you had to have the materials for that. Mm-hmm. Iron ore mining makes your metal. And then you got lumber that makes the the floor of the vehicle, the bed of the vehicle. I mean, there was so much there that he could utilize. And and Ford was all about not wasting a thing. No. And that is actually, we're going to get very shortly to the origination of the Kingsford charcoal briquette. That was a byproduct of the manufacturing process. But first, I want to talk about the guys themselves a little more. So Ford became good friends with Kingsford. And they also happened to be friends with Harvey Firestone, the yep. tire guy, and Thomas Edison, who hopefully you all have heard of. <laughs> <laughs> and these guys together essentially invented glamping. And, yep. yeah. and they called them, they went, on, they went on these extravagant road trip camping trips in the UP. Well, you're and, talking a caravan. Yeah, they, they had, had a like lot of a caravan of vehicles. Chefs, they would bring they would bring cooks and people you, to put up their tents it. and take them down. And this was in a different era. These guys would wear like three piece suits camping. Yeah. And I mean, that's the only way I camp. <laughs> How do you go camping? <laughs> and and so these guys would take this caravan up and go camping, and it became such a spectacle because I mean, we're talking about Henry Ford, Thomas Edison. These are 
Well, they were considered huge. geniuses. They were celebrities. Of their time. They yeah. were the Elon Musks. Yeah, they were of, huge of their and, time. And a lot of people had an issue with why are they doing this? Why are they going to these places? And and I think that's important in itself because it pulls that interest to those places. Yes. It says, "Hey, man, if that guy is there, why am I not there?" And so they, because of the celebrity of these guys, they actually pulled reporters would follow them on their camping trips and report on the story, and. Obviously, this is a different time. It takes a while for the news to travel. They don't have a blog they can post to live. But um, these guys would go on this on these road trip, these camping trips up in the UP. And it, like I said, they called themselves the Vagabonds. And it became kind of a celebrity spectacle. People, it was the reality show of the day. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, they pretty much invented like the first SUV, if you will. If you go back and you look at... Uh, photos from them times and, and there's a couple of vehicles that are pointed out during that time frame where they were pretty much what they would consider a panel truck or something like that but it, it had multiple seats in it more space covered you know they could keep all their dry goods dry you know pretty much you know so i mean you're looking at you know the first ford explorer if you will you know from a different perspective <laughs> literally a guy named ford exploring exactly <laughs> see I mean, a possibility of a name drop there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. could be connected, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, so I want to. I do want to move on to the invention at Kingsford and how the town came to be and how it got its name. But is there anything else we want to talk about with these four gents? Okay. So Kingsford is, of course, named after E.J. Kingsford. But the the Kingsford Charcoal Burkett, Burkett which actually was invented in Kingsford, Michigan, in the UP, um, started out as the Ford charcoal briquette. And I, on the website, I did the research. They, they actually had the bags with the Ford logo on and everything. But when Ford died in 1947, they phased out the charcoal business and spun it off into the Kingsford Chemical Company, making their own briquettes. And then I believe it was in the 60s, yeah. they moved from uh, Kingsford, Michigan to Louisville, Kentucky. But up until the 60s, Kingsford charcoal was in... Uh, Iron Mountain Kingsford and the way that that came to be is again Ford was a perfectionist and did not want to waste anything and so when you created these vehicles and you were using the wood there was a byproduct that came off of that and he figured out it was highly flammable and so they compacted it into these burquettes and that's how charcoal was invented. Yeah, I mean, it's based off of a patent from a guy from Pennsylvania. Oh, there was a guy who made it first, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but he didn't make it. It was just a patent. It was a design. Um, it was never manufactured, especially not at the level Ford did. I mean, really, Ford came in and he he blossomed that Kingsford area. I mean, he, he really showed it something. There was no Kingsford. So from what I've heard, now this isn't from my research. This is from word of mouth in Iron Mountain community. Iron Mountain, even to this day, they're getting a little more progressive, but they've always been uh, adverse to change. And when Ford came in and said, hey, I want to build this factory here to build vehicles, Iron Mountain was like, no, you can't. And so he bought the tract of land next to Iron Mountain yeah. and built his factory. And then, of course, back then there you had the, the factory that's, towns. That's the thing you run into in the UP is like when some people have been in an area for so long, somebody else wants to come in and change it. They're not so susceptible yeah. to change. Yeah. You know, you can pack your bags and leave my area is pretty much what the locals will say. But in spite of that, yeah. he did find a way around that and it did work to their benefit. And, and, and if Iron Mountain had been a little more willing, 
I would argue that Iron Mountain would probably be Marquette sized. Oh, it you know, most likely would the have two been double combined, size. Yeah, Iron Mountain made a couple of mistakes in the way they developed themselves. They kind of landlocked their their commercial zones, and and it has a hard time growing. And where it grows now, the commercial zones are on the outside of the actual city of Iron Mountain. They're in Kingsford or Brighton Township. Yeah, or, yeah, and. Uh, one fact I'll throw in there is the Dickinson County that Iron Mountain Kingsford is in is, in, is the youngest county in Michigan. Um, it was carved out of Marquette County and Gogebic County, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And that was, I don't remember when, but it was in the 1900s, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the impetus of the Ching- Kingsford Charcoal Burkett. And, and like we said, from the Ford plant, the town of Kingsford grew because back then the company town was the thing. And to this day, you drive through parts of Iron Mountain Kingsford and you see the cookie cutter iron uh, company houses yeah. and the company store yeah. is still there. I mean, which, I think it's pretty incredible that, you know, everybody in this country is using charcoal briquettes to grill every, let's say, 4th of July. Mm-hmm. But be honest with you, man, this town, this Iron Mountain town is... That's where it comes from. Yeah. That's number one, numero uno right there. And tons of Fords were fan- manufactured there. And then we get into, well, we're about to skip a couple decades here. We're talking about the 20s and 30s and But I mean, and the 40s. 40s and 30s, you push through automobiles. And automobiles were very big at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he was pumping out cars like you wouldn't believe. He was manufacturing parts for cars that he needed. He was buying even more property up north to, mm-hmm. and built another sawmill up there towards the QAnon. I mean, it's just how it progressed. But even progression can only go on so far before what happens you know, sometimes war takes place. Yep. And, and, and so getting into the 1940s, there's something you may have heard of called World War II. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you didn't. <laughs> we have another wrong. podcast for you. That's, that's part of the reason we're doing this podcast, too, is uh, educational systems in some places are questionable now in the U.S. So here we go. <laughs> you know, well, and one thing, before we jump into World War II, one thing that I think is kind of interesting, too, is in the 30s, they were really starting to take this idea of motoring as a trip, as a family activity, whatever. They were linking that with Kingsford, and Ford was actually selling what they called picnic kits with their vehicles. And so they were they were coming up with this concept that, hey, we can sell the whole idea of travel and grilling outside and being in nature and going places that you don't normally get to travel. That's a big departure from the fact that when you know, Ford cars in all reality first came out, they were replacing horse and carriage. Oh, yeah. You know, and so that's that's the first, uh, I think, sense of, like, the modern way we think about road tripping. It's not like it was a a brand new idea. There was environmentalists on the West Coast doing this all over the place. I mean, you even had John Muir. John Muir. Yeah. You know, they take pictures and walk. President Roosevelt. Yeah, President Roosevelt. The guy invented the national park system. I mean, it's just the way it is. But Ford made it more accessible. Yeah. He said, hey, let's let's do this. Let me give you more things, more and, options in your vehicles. And honestly, we've come full circle. How great would it be if we had something like that now? A way for families. Well, there, it exists, but the awareness. Like, take your family camping and picnicking. Yeah. The, the traveling and camping that my family did as a kid, like, I think yeah. that helped shape who I am a little bit. And 
Oh, I don't know. Family it's, trips just aren't the same anymore no. as they used to. Family doesn't want, they don't want to spend time together. Well, without getting too far down a different rabbit hole, yeah, but that you know, is the rabbit yeah. hole. No, no, but I, I just, you're right though. And I think one thing that's so interesting is when you had that era all the way from like the 30s to the 50s, right? There was a much bigger middle class, and we know from all of our economic talks that the middle class was much closer together, and like the wealth gap between the top and the bottom was there. So the reason I think camping was such a popular thing is because that's what everybody did. So like you were never looking at Instagram thinking about like the life in Fiji that you don't have. Everyone you know goes on trips and road trips and camps and does this stuff. And so that was American life in some ways at that point. And, you know, America had been around for a while now, but it was still, there was still this ambiance of discovery and, you know, westward westward expansion wasn't that long ago. I mean, we're talking early 1900s. We've got Civil War veterans running around still. So it's that, that, that piece is there yet. So... We, we're talking about the Ford's plant. They're making the cars. We're getting into the 40s now. And then we've got World War II. Yeah. I mean, the war effort pulled from everywhere. Yeah, it didn't matter what community you had. It was pulling, whether it was individuals or it was it was manufacturing. I mean, any industry out there, I mean, they were going to supply something to the war effort. Yeah. And, you know, what's really fascinating about this, too, is you remember before we talked about Iron Mountain's current population being about 7,500 people, right? Well, during this time, there was about 7,000 employees just at the Ford factory. So as the war starts to go on and all of the natural resources are being geared towards the war effort... Ford can't produce Ford cars anymore because they need everybody to produce everything else. But interestingly enough, Ford's factory was not included in the war reorganization effort for industry. So you had 7,200 people, or I'm sure a majority of the community, that's suddenly out of work. Yeah, it's crazy. And I'm excited when we get into the Q&A episode because talking about population fluctuations, when we talk about Calumet, Michigan... That's, I'm excited, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> so this is a good segue for real quick before we do talk about the glider manufacturing and the war. Um, I did look at the populations. Marquette is, is the largest. Sault Ste. Marie is actually the second largest. Oh, though, okay. With 13,000. And then Escanaba's in third. And then they have Menominee fourth, but that's because they're counting Houghton and Iron Mountain by themselves, not with Houghton and Hancock combined and Iron Mountain and Kingsford combined. So, Dan, what did you say Iron Mountain and Kingsford together were? About 13,000, a little less, 12,500. Okay, so that would put them at number four. Number four. Yeah. So, and then like Marv said, Houghton Hancock, the population changes drastically based on if the school years. Oh, Michigan Tech, yeah, changes it quite a bit. Even Marquette's population will fluctuate because of Northern Michigan University. Yeah. So, So, getting into World War II... We got these gliders. Like, yeah, we've one of the the tactics, for better or worse, and Dan will discuss this, uh, that we decided to implement in the war was using gliders, and which wasn't a brand new concept. There was other countries that have employed this this style of uh, delivery, if you will, <laughs> to certain locations, but they weren't completely invested into it because of the nature of it, right? Yeah, well, and I mean, oh man, 
being being on a glider is <laughs> is a bummer. Let's just say that, it's like in all ways, shapes, and form. So you know, there's a couple interesting things. For for starters, they aren't known as flying coffins for nothing, right? They right. they weren't exactly um, well protected, but they're cheap and they can be built fast. And that's part of the the key here is that if you need to stand up a large scale group of aerial troop transports in a short amount of time. Gliders was the way to do it. Oh, very and, much and so. And you could deliver so much more uh, intricately with a glider than you ever could parachuting into a certain area. Yep. Yeah, no, and it's it's interesting. So one of the pieces that I thought was fascinating is most of the glider pilots were guys who were passed over for regular pilot training. <laughs> so like, so you had this like self-selected group of dudes who was, you know, they had something to prove from day one because oh, yeah. they got passed over for regular motorized pilot training. And so a couple of these guys made a name for themselves very, very quickly, very early on as just being absolute daredevils. And so, you know, it was pretty interesting to read some of the stories. And you can see so that if you the, go back to the U.S. version of the Kamikaze pilot. A little bit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fairly, yeah. Except I they expect to get right. out and go back and do it again. Yeah. Right, but not everyone was successful. Yeah. Crashing once isn't good enough for these uh, guys. Landing was a huge thing. You had to be able to land this uh, glider aircraft. And if you weren't able to hit the target, which a lot of them did not hit the target... It was pretty catastrophic. Yeah, well, you know, you think about it in terms of, and, and this was fascinating for me as I was reading about it, to think about what they had to negotiate, right? So you are being towed by a tow plane. If your tow plane gets hit, you now have to negotiate with the pilot of that tow plane for your life and that of your men. Because if they're looking at their own aircraft and saying, like, I've got a giant hole either in my right engine or in my wing or whatever, I can't get very far, I need to turn around. Like, they can't do that with you in tow. So there's all these stories about some of the pilots of the tow planes basically calling back and letting the glider know, we're cutting you loose over the English Channel or over somewhere that's going to be really bad. Um, you know, and they, they had to negotiate that piece of it. Secondarily, at least in another aircraft with, with twin engines, right, which a lot of the larger aircraft were, you can still fly for a while on a single engine, some of them indefinitely that way. If you lose one side of anything on a glider, you turn from a glider to a meteor, right? And oh, you're, yeah. you're going straight into the ground. So You just become a dart. <laughs> yeah, 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 basically. So um, this was a really interesting concept to be adopted in mass uh, by the U.S., I guess, Army and Army Air well, Corps at that even time. even the right? United States, you know, when they entered this concept of the glider, um, we were able to use it way more successful than previous countries were able to do that and in one way we were able to do that is because Ford was able to mass produce these things in a small town in the UP you know at the time I mean he was able to produce wicked amounts of these things Dan, you had a figure, didn't you, on how many they were creating in a week, was it? Yeah, and I'm trying to pull it up again. I want to say it was something like 48, which is like a good well, chunk of a squadron. Yeah, time, like you know, 7,000 yeah. workers pumping these things out like crazy. Yeah, these factories didn't have the automation we have today. No. Yeah, it was just elbow grease. And you have to figure just about every able-bodied man in America was gone in the war. So it's all women building these things. And exactly. I actually heard a firsthand account. Um, my step-grandfather, who just passed a couple years ago, Jerry, um, he had 
uh, what kind of, I think it was a hearing condition. Some, some, some kind of condition that he, he wanted to serve, but he wasn't able to. And he talks about working in that glider plant in, during the war. And he's like, I was the only guy there. He said it was great. <laughs> um, and yeah, so it's all, it's all about perspective. Yeah. So it's all women building these things because all the guys are, every guy that's qualified is over there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it is just fascinating to think about what, what these things were, you know, and, and what we did to to adopt them. Oh, and, um, and the people that flew them, Everything that went into a war effort like that, no matter where you are in this country or what your town or industry has given to the war effort, every one of them is commendable. Yeah. And and I don't think we've seen anything like it since with the exception of a brief window after 9-11. There was a little glimmer there after 9-11. And other than that, we haven't seen anything like that. No. no, I mean, it was truly the concept of total war, you know, the, the whole society being involved top to bottom in the war effort. And on, on some level, I mean, I guess I say this as a civilian, but to you guys as both, you know, military veterans, shouldn't every war be that? Like, if we're yeah. going to send our people to war, should it not be something that is worth the entire society being well, behind it? As When civilian friends and acquaintances ask me about my time as a drill sergeant... They talk about, you know, the, the movie image of a drill siren. And, and, and yeah, we do yell a lot. And we are mean. And I tell them there's two reasons for that. One, you have all of these different people from all these different backgrounds. Some have had more stress in life than others. So you need them all to know what stress is like. But the second piece is having all these people from all different backgrounds come together. They don't always get along. And the easiest way to get a group of diverse people to get along is to give them a common enemy. Exactly. And that's what World War II did for us. And you look at a country like ours now, how divided we are. The analogy I give, as silly as it is, is the movie Independence Day. If aliens invaded, I bet I there would be no Democrat, Republican, this, that. Like, humans, aliens. Exactly. That's it. Uh, and it's unfortunate that it takes that. But that's part of the human psyche that when you are so different from someone, it is you have to find that commonality. I agree with you. I mean, during them times, you got to understand even the dynamics of Iron Mountain at that time was probably still, like we were talking about the divide between Kingsford and Iron Mountain, you know, and accepting a small amount of change. There, there was no uh, small period of time where these people had to segue into this. They all banded together right off the bat. It didn't matter who you were, whose neighbor you were. I, they wanted to be a part of this effort. And it was, it was a very strong thing that brought people together, if you will. It was a pride yeah. thing. You know, the, you see the women's rights movements today are still using the Rosie the Riveter imagery. Mm-hmm. And I'm betting a lot of them don't even understand its origin. But that's, you know, that's what you learn from history. And, and like I said before, there's towns all over this great country of ours that have, you know, small things like this that gave them that war effort or whatever. But you can learn from that. You can learn that there was a unified group of people that were still diverse. Mm-hmm. And they were brought together over, well, 
priding country. And, exactly. Well, and, and I think something that's so, As a people. Yeah. Something that's so amazing to me about this and, and in the context of Iron Mountain that we're talking about, right, is like anytime you look back on this period, you think the major industrial centers. But that's not really the way it went. There were hundreds, like you said, of small communities that like nobody remembers if you're not taking the time to look at it that were instrumental to the ability to do this. So I, and I right look, there is our elevator pitch for this podcast. That's, there it is. There it is. Yeah. So you know, I look back at it. So take Ford, for example, building these gliders, right? And one of the things that's most amazing about this is Ford was able to really pivot its expertise in streamlining the manufacturing process into military creation. And the government was thrilled about this. They hired Ford to build a thousand gliders. Ford built 4,200 gliders. So I looked at the number, it was about eight a day. So 56 gliders a week. So that's a whole- By hand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, by hand. I mean, it's nuts. And You're talking round-the-clock labor yeah. right there. So interestingly, too, this is something that's crazy to me. So they would build these things. They'd have a government inspector go through the factory to check each uh, uh, glider, excuse me, to make sure it met the standards. After that was done, they would then disassemble the entire thing, pack it up, put it on a train, ship it somewhere where it needed to go so it could be reassembled in theater. Oh, yeah, it was a kit. Yeah, which that's is, which is crazy to think about. So... Ford actually at one point later in the game cut a huge swath through the forest that went right from the Ford factory to the nearest airport so that they could just bring the gliders straight out to the airport and have a tow plane take them right out of Ford's area to wherever they were headed. And the airport now in Iron Mountain is the Ford County Airport. The so Ford Airport, yeah. Who knows, that could be the same strip. I, I don't know. Oh, I'm sure it is. It's yeah. been there for quite a while. And they're not far from each other, so no. that would make Definitely sense. Not. And for anybody who's interested in checking this out, it is the Waco CG4A glider. That is the name of the glider that was built at the Ford plant um, in, in Kingsford. And so I mean, history can be looked at from many different perspectives. We're just asking you to look at it from this perspective. And so the last note I had in the history piece is talking about a couple of famous coaches that came from the area, but that is making a huge jump from the 1940s to like the seventies. So do you guys have anything that fits in those missing decades? <laughs> Wait, just... there were decades in between there? <laughs> I think the town just developed as, like I said, as it will, you know? I mean, there wasn't, we're talking about huge things that have taken place, you know, the, the stars of the region. Um, I mean, you had the hospital built, you know, the VA built. I mean, there was a lot of small things that uh, built in that area. You had the pulp mill that was built in Quinnisec. You had the Niagara paper mill that was built in Niagara. Both viable working industries for a very long time. Um, yeah. The Niagara paper mill is closed now, but I believe the Quinnisec pulp mill is still going. It is, yeah. And, and it's interesting that he mentions the VA hospital because the next closest VA hospital is Milwaukee. And that's a testament to how many veterans ended up in the UP. The UP has a, an abnormally large amount of veterans, I feel like, per capita. Um, but, yeah, that, that is an interesting note, note to say. So, again, um, another uh, note of historical significance is coming out of within just a couple, if I'm not mistaken, I think they're only one or two classes apart from each other in high school, or maybe you've even been in the same class, 
Tom Izzo, uh, and who is a men's basketball coach for college in Michigan, and uh, former NFL head coach Steve Mariucci, both graduated from Iron Mountain High School. And Mooch. my dad graduated in the 70s, and dad had four siblings, and he had a sibling graduate with each of these guys. So that's kind of cool. And as you drive into town, it says home of Tom Izzo and Steve Mariucci. Both the guys are big supporters of the community. Their names are on a few buildings, including the high school, uh, gymnasium. I believe and, the local YMCA also has a building with a name on it over okay. there. And as much as I want to give Mariucci just so much of a hard time because he coached the Lions <laughs> and we're in Wisconsin, he was actually the quarterback's coach for the Packers yeah. in, the, uh, in the early to, 90s. Uh, he went off to San Francisco mm-hmm. for a while. And, and Izzo is still coaching, isn't then he? Then he came to my team, the Detroit Lions, which I'm obviously not amongst Lions fans, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm used to that. Mark trekked into enemy territory, too. Yeah. <laughs> the UP is, an, for football fans, the UP is an interesting uh, geographical place for football fandom. So I think because of that cultural divide from lower Michigan, the vast majority of UPers, I think you'll find, are Packers fans. But the closer you get to the bridge, the more Lions fans you run into. And then there's a little tiny corner in the southwest portion of the UP around Ironwood where you're going to find Vikings fans. And that's because um, where Marv said it's less than two hours to get to Green Bay from Iron Mountain. It's a, relatively speaking, for a Uper short drive from Ironwood to Duluth. Yes. And so you do find a little nugget of, of Vikings fans down there. And then, and then with Iron Mountain being so close to the Wisconsin yeah. border and being so close to Green Bay, that's where most of our television came from. Yeah. Was down there. We didn't get Fox Detroit. Marquette's cool because Marquette's cool because <laughs> they play both the Packer and Lions games. Yes. From Marquette, because there's got a blend there. And part of that might be the college. But um yeah, so it isn't and then there's a tiny sprinkle of Bears fans, which all of us dislike, so we all bond. There's <laughs> yeah, that common enemy okay again. Yeah, the, the common, common enemy, enemy we were talking about. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that, I think, is going to wrap up our history portion of the show. Do you guys have anything else you wanted to? All right. No, a, a lot of the history is still alive there. Mm-hmm. If you go, you can still see much of what we're talking about. You know, the pump is still yeah, enshrined. They, they the they mines are the still Cornish there. But, yeah. museum. They do have the uh, Gliders Museum as well. You can um, obviously travel up to the top of Millie Mine Hill. Uh, there is an active mine shaft up there. That's where you go to watch the bats mm-hmm. and everything. And uh, There's a bat cave, Dan. Yeah. Nice. Dan's a big Batman fan. It's, I am. It's the Indeed. second largest cave that uh, has hibernating bats in the world. So our next section, the Live Like the Locals section, we're going to talk about some local events, traditions, and some of the small businesses in the area. So the first one that I want to mention briefly is their beer festival. Now, they started it not that long ago, and then it paused. They didn't hold it in 2020 or 2021 because of COVID, like many other things. And then they just restarted it this year. And I actually went this year and in 2019. And unfortunately, this year, it was it's like pouring rain the whole time. But they had a big main tent that everyone was able to hang out in. And it was a cool festival. I, I think they kind of got the idea from the UP Fall Beer Festival, which is in Marquette. And at some point, maybe episode six-ish, we'll do Marquette um, as, a, as our featured area. But 
there's a huge beer festival in Marquette every fall. And so this one, it has several Michigan breweries and they have a couple food trucks there. It's right downtown Iron Mountain. There's a little area in downtown where they hold this, they hold their Oktoberfest and then Italian Festival, which we'll talk about in a bit because that's arguably the bigger festival in town. It's been around for a long time. And then uh, they do their farmer's markets there and that kind of stuff too. So it's a cool little event to check out. Uh, they have it in June every year. And I'm guessing since they bought it back this year that it'll be annual again going forward. And hopefully next year they have nicer weather for it. Oh, for sure. In that area, microbrews are Huge. popping up everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and they're all very good. So uh, next up is Pine Mountain and the Ski Jumps. We'll spend a little time on this because this is one of the bigger... That's huge. Things in the area. Pine Mountain is a ski resort. They have ski hills and a couple different bars and a restaurant and like a hotel environment and then some lodges adjacent to it. And then there's also a golf course there, which is a really nice golf course. Yes, it's considered one of the best. Dan and I actually golfed around there once and Mm -hmm. we felt like we probably shouldn't have been there yeah well we we probably shouldn't have been there. <laughs> yeah so um but it, it's gorgeous timberstone it's a gorgeous golf course and um so that's in itself those are a big tourist attraction and great opportunity for locals to visit but the the big thing that brings people is the ski jump so there is uh an olympic style ski jump i'm not as much of an expert on it but uh it's world class. Yeah, they it's they have an international ski jump competition every February. People come from all over the world to compete. People come from all over the UP to drink and watch. Yeah, right <laughs> and now they, it's called the Continental Cup is what they run. The Kiwanis put it on, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and um, the they just upgraded the the jump recently. The whole jump got a facelift, and now there's a Veterans Memorial on top of the hill as well. And there's some stairs that go down the side of the ski jump. Local people will run the stairs and stuff. But this ski jump competition in February, I would say the ski jumps and Italian Fest are the two biggest gatherings in the Iron Mountain area annually. Uh, And there's a huge field out in front of the ski jump. And it's like, it looks like a Packer game there. Like You're talking like 20,000 people come to this thing. Yep. In the middle of winter. It don't matter what the weather is outside. Yeah. People will be there. And it gets cold over there. I mean, we've we've actually gone to Pine Mountain on days where it's like, what, 20 below zero? And you don't even want to ski when it's that cold yeah. because everything gets so hard. Like, we well, s- for those that are from there, we don't <laughs> say that. We just say stuff's about to get crazy. Because <laughs> you got to do things to stay warm, right? Yeah. Um, and actually, a secret for the skiers, people who like to ski, the best time to go skiing at Pine Mountain is during the ski jumps because nobody's on the hill. Exactly. They're all partying in the parking lot. Yep. Dan and I, we did that. We skied during the yep. ski jumps. We've, we've done some partying there, too. And the first uh, winter, so we had a tradition for years when we were in our 20s where myself and some of my best friends would go to Iron Mountain for my birthday. And you know, my birthday is January 3rd. And we would you know, party up in Iron Mountain. And the first year we did it, it wasn't on my birthday weekend. It was on the weekend of the ski jumps. And we didn't, I think we knew the ski jumps were happening, but we didn't know anything about them. Yeah, we stumbled in. And oh my goodness, did we stumble in. And then we stumbled out. (laughs) We did, we did. Yeah, literally. But it was really cool because we're at this bar in Iron Mountain, Michigan, and we're partying with people from Sweden and Finland. Yeah, that's the thing about the jump is the jump itself is world-renowned. I mean, skiers from all over the world know this jump because it's very specific on the design of this jump. It is so high. 
that to be able to, you don't think about it from the bottom when you're looking at this thing, that it's going to be very hard to jump off of here, that it'd be a lot like a lot of other ski jumps or anything like that. But this thing is very specific. You're looking at, I think it's like 176 feet high. I mean, that's, that's a high jump, but you're, you're working against wind up there you don't even know anything about. As a matter of fact, the, the top U.S. record is still held at that jump. Wow. That thing is impressive when you see it in real life. It's, it's downright scary. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. You look at that thing and, man, if you got to the top of that, as somebody who doesn't do ski jumps, it's terrifying. I, I give those people so much Like you credit. almost get vertigo from standing at yeah. the bottom looking up. Yeah, it, no right? thanks, you know. I, Nick knows all about getting injured at Pine Mountain. Yeah. Um, I can only imagine the kind of injuries that I would be carried off with having tried to go off that <laughs> yeah. ski jump. I, uh, we were doing night skiing one night, and for those who ski, you know, when the sun goes down, sometimes the hills get icier. And uh, I, on my 25th birthday, broke my clavicle for the second time on Pine Mountain. Now, funny story about this. None of us were involved in medicine or anything at the time, and because we were a rowdy group of young guys and we thought we knew everything, Poor Nick came, uh, you know, hobbling down the side of the hill with his skis in tow and one shoulder drooped to about half the height of his torso. And uh, he tells us all, he's like, I think I broke my shoulder or my, my collarbone. And we, what, proceeded to give you crap about it for like the next 45 minutes to an hour. Like nobody believed him. We made him carry all of his crap down the hill, everything. And then we finally brought him over to the hospital. And not only did you break your clavicle, it had rotated 90 degrees and was almost about to come out of your shoulder or go through your subclav artery. So luckily, we figured that out sooner than later. But but yeah, we didn't believe you at first. We were kind of we yeah, jerks about that. It was so that. funny. They, they were poking fun at me like because I was wincing in pain. And then when I brought home the, the VA, and again, good thing the VA hospital was there. Um, I brought home the to where we were staying, the x-ray, and all the guys like in use, and when I pulled out the x-ray, were like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> and for those so. of you out in the public, if you're interested, Nick's shoulder is still a featured broken uh, appendage on, what, Snow Fix Snow and Fix. the Sunday show? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that shouldn't discourage you from skiing. Pine Mountain's actually a pretty mild hill when it comes to like skiing challenge. But um, definitely a popular destination. A lot of people shy away from the UP because of the winter and the way it is. But there are events that happen up there that are one-of-a-kind things to experience. If you've never experienced a ski jump, that's definitely the number one place I would recommend anybody go, yeah. period. And when we talk about the Keweenaw again uh, in a couple of months, we'll talk about Mount Bohemia, which, again, for skiers is a destination. I mean... Aside from maybe Lutzen in Minnesota, I would say it's probably one of the best places to ski in the Midwest. So And there's nothing to worry about the locals that are there either. Everybody's just calm, cool, everything's collected. Yeah. Everybody's welcoming, you know? Yep. So moving on from the ski jumps, uh, the next other, like I mentioned, the other big festival that happens in the Iron Mountain Kingsford area is Italian Fest. And we're gonna kind of cover this in two parts. Part of it will be under this section and part of it will be under Devour because we're going to talk about all the Italian restaurants, but as I mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast, there's an abnormal amount of Italian settlers in that region. And as a result of that, downtown Iron Mountain, I think it's in the fall, is I want September, October, I want to say? Something like is that. Is Italian Fest, and it is a giant party. Because Ishberman does one as well. 
Yep. It's another place in the UP. And um, so it's a destination for sure. And Marv, you had uh, given me the inclination that you have a little bit of a history behind well, the Italian Well, you know, I grew up in the UP. So there's always, you know, the stories roaming around, you know. I can't point out anything by fact by any means. But, I mean, just about every community up there has a certain level of Italian individuals in these places. And you get to wondering why. Anybody would. Um, a lot of the old timers from when I was younger expressed the big influx due to Italians leaving Chicago for some reason. Maybe they had ties to mafia, but there's no fact to that. <laughs> and a lot would end up in northern Wisconsin as long as as well as the UP itself. Yeah. Uh, it's actually commonly known Al Capone did have some hideouts around here in northeast Wisconsin. Exactly. Maribel. Uh, Derringer and yep. things like that. And, you know, some of them just decided to settle there. I can and, corroborate uh, part of that. There, There's a woman who I was a family friend in the Iron Mountain area and sounds like her husband probably was my, involved. My mom was a bit of a drinker, sure. <laughs> and uh, she had uh, plenty of claims of... Drinking with certain individuals from Chicago and New York that uh, came up to the UP to take a vacation, if you will. <laughs> the good news for the rest of us is they brought with them their awesome cuisine. Yes. And we'll talk about that in the second part of the Italian history of, of the area. But I'm sure a lot had to do with labor as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and there's actually a historical church in uh, West the west side of Iron Mountain that the Italian settlers built. And I'm not Catholic, but I, I guess it has some significance to the Catholics. So I just heard that in hearsay. That was a part of my research, which is why I have, I'm so poorly articulating the information. <laughs> I mean, a lot of uh, individuals will migrate to certain areas based on industry as well and, and we talked about that yeah i mean really following the mining right and one of the things that's interesting too is what they brought with them so i mean most of the italian immigrants that actually did come over from italy certainly were not necessarily miners in the old world so um they brought over winemaking cheese making brick laying was apparently uh, in masonry were a pretty popular thing among some of the italian immigrants so different industries that you know they they brought oh, yeah. the skills you with have to too. go where the work is that's just mm -hmm. the way it is Moving along, one of the destinations in the area is Piers Gorge. It's actually not in Iron Mountain or even in Michigan. It's, in, it's on the Wisconsin-Michigan border. And in the Iron Mountain-Kingsford area, the Menominee River delineates the border between Wisconsin and Michigan. And Piers Gorge is a gorgeous spot where the river runs through and there's a hiking trail alongside of it. Some short cliffs. People go whitewater rafting through there. Uh, it's a really cool place to to check out. I highly encourage it. It's actually in... I mean, you want to talk about scenic? That's where you're going right there. That is a beautiful spot. All you photographers out there or anything, and it's into landscape photography. UP is obviously great for that yeah. all around. But Piers Gorge is a very beautiful place. There's a, like uh, Nick said, there's a beautiful trail that runs alongside that river all the way down to each pier that goes down. The piers are named that way because of the way the rocks lay in the river that shoots the water out further as it goes over the falls. Beautiful place. And one of the things that's cool about those areas in the UP too is they're beautiful in every season. 
Oh, like yeah. They're, they're yes. beautiful in the summer. The fall is a whole different experience. Even in the winter after fresh snow, like, I mean, it's incredible yeah. all I year round. I would say spring would probably be the one you wouldn't want to check out because it's just kind of, like, slushy. and Yeah, and it, it takes a minute to but, but get spring, rid of snow. But, but spring is short in the UP. Winter is long, and then there's a short spring, and then you're into summer. And then fall is, like, two weeks. <laughs> but if you can time it, to go to the U- anywhere in the UP during that short fall, it is out of this world. The colors exactly. in the UP, all those pure Michigan ads you see on television, I would say three quarters of those image, the imagery you see is from the UP. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I For mean, sure. the colors up there are just out of this world. But, I mean, if you're going Iron Mountain, Piers Gorge for definitely scenic and fall foliage for sure. Yep. And, again, for whitewater rafters, there's a couple companies that run rafting through there. It's great. So a cu- the other couple bullet points I had on here is uh, local shops, one of which has just been open for a few years. I think they opened actually right before COVID. Uh, unfortunate time, but props to them. They made it all the way through, and that's brick and mortar. It's in downtown Iron Mountain on Hewitt Street, and it's such a cool little store. They have a little bit of everything. There's seasonally appropriate apparel, there's little like touristy knickknacks. There's a collection of cool books. Um, they have a whole area. They have like a like a succulent garden almost, where it's all yeah. cactuses and different. Uh, I I don't know anything about plants, but whatever <laughs> would you classify as succulents? There was like a whole room full of just that stuff that and, they sold. And they've got for tourists. They've got T-shirts that are UP centric you know, something to kind of show that you were up there. The owners are awesome. It's a young couple. And uh, I just, anytime I bring someone new to Iron Mountain, I always make sure we stop into brick and mortar to support them. And just because there's something in there for everybody. There's very few times I brought someone in there and they didn't buy something. And decent quality stuff too. Like most of what they they sell is... You can tell they carefully curate. It's almost like a a physical um, representation of the ND list. Or something yes. for those who listen to our other podcast or, or watch our website or social medias. But that's definitely one to check out. Another one which has been in town for a long time is called Step Ahead. And they sell a lot of Carhartt clothing and boots. They had a location in Kingsford and then they built a brand new store in Iron Mountain on US2 recently. And it's it's really nice in there. They sell a lot of, a lot of nice quality products. Like I said, mostly Carhartt. Uh, and then they have an assortment of boots and, and so on. Last, this circles back to the history a little bit, uh, at least for my list here. There's two grocery stores, supermarkets, that are still around from like the 1950s. I should have actually looked up the dates on these. I wish I had. But Monette's, which is in Kingsford. Actually, they're both in Kingsford. Monette's is in Kingsford, just off of the main drag. And then Central Supermarket is kind of right in the middle of a residential area in Kingsford. And these are those little, like single room grocery stores from the 50s and they just have a little bit of everything and even carrying products that they would have carried years ago yeah you know that you thought might have disappeared over time but they're still there you walk in there and it's like walking in a time machine they they have not changed since probably the 60s and it's just cool that these little grocery stores can survive when you've got a walmart and a super one right there in town I think partly because of the way they're located and then partly of, like we said, Uber sticks strong to their traditions 
and Iron Mountain in particular kind of takes a while to embrace change. And, and I will say the last like decade, they've made a lot of progress there, but um, it's a cool, t- for those who love history, it's a cool time machine experience to walk into these yeah. little, if you like that vintage markets. feel, if you like that vintage aura, when you go into a place, these are the places you're going to accomplish that at, you know, you're going to be just happy walking through the door because it is like a time machine. It's a bit of history right there. Really cool stuff. So that's what I all had in the Live Like the Locals. Did you two have anything else you wanted to share in that? Just at the end, I mean, it is a, I would consider it a fairly growing place. I mean, it, it may not grow very fast, but it's growing. There's plenty of room there for, for newer shops, newer things. The you last know? 10 and, years, they've been fairly progressive. And I don't think yeah. it's a, I don't think it's a place to be afraid of if you're looking to make a venture of any kind. I mean, it's definitely a nice place. Uh, the, like I said, the locals are very welcoming. You got a lot of cool industry around there. Uh, Pine Mountain, you know, tourist trap kind of industry as well. And one thing that could go for a lot of the places we're going to talk about on the Northwoods Distilled Podcast is affordability. As far as vacation goes, it's way more affordable to go someplace like Iron Mountain than Vancouver, Seattle, Hawaii, you know, anything like that. I mean, even local stuff. We're, we're in Wisconsin, and so two really popular areas here are Door County and, for whatever reason, Wisconsin Dells, right? And both of those are priced through the roof during the, during the on-season. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, there's just as much cool stuff to see in the UP as in either of those places, in all honesty. I mean, they're oh, beautiful. Don't get me wrong. northern location, but, yeah. really, that we're talking about here, you know, northern Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, the UP, and so forth. I mean, there's a lot of smaller places that are worth visiting, yeah. and it's not going to break your bank. Mm-hmm. Which is important nowadays with inflation where it's at. On that cheerful note. We're going to dive into the devour section. And again, this is where we're going to talk about the cuisine of the area, talk about local restaurants, cafes, and the local hole in the walls that people like to check out. I don't know about you guys, but when I travel and take vacations, I want to go to places that I can't visit at home. Exactly. And there's a lot of that in the UP and in this area. So the, the, we can't talk about anywhere in the UP and tourism without talking about pasties. Right. Pasties are a big deal. Which comes from where? Same thing, Cornish pasties. So we talked a little bit earlier in the episode about the Cornish migration, and this is a popular food item that came along with that. Now, I found out actually that there is a protected status. There is now a protected geographical indication for pasties in Europe. So the true, true pasty is now filled with beef, slicer diced potato, swede, which is yellow turnip or rutabaga, and then onion seasoned with salt and pepper and baked. So that is that is the official, official pasty. And that is how most places in the UP still make it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's the staple there. Um, the Finnish immigrants took over making pasties in the UP for quite a long time. Uh, they kept to that specific recipe like that uh, because a traditional Finnish pasty is a loaf of bread with a fish baked in it and... I don't know about you, but I don't really want to eat that. Now, let's just talk for a second because I think this is interesting. Why is that 
food item popular? Like where, where, it's, why did it's this? It's a meal contained yeah. right there. It's, it's, it's a miner's meal is what yeah, that is. It's, it's sort of like miners. You could take it down in your, in your lunchbox and go down and into the hole and eat a full meal. I mean, you're, you're talking about meat and vegetables all in one encased carbohydrate yeah and and i don't know about you guys but the other thing i've noticed about them is they stay hot forever yeah. like once you bake that thing well, but it they're is great cold yeah too. it is I it is hot for they, they're good though they're but yeah good. no they stay piping hot for a long long time. time like hours later you take a bite and you're still burning your mouth trying to eat one yep so that is definitely the the one regional food that is most associated with the up and you'll find several good pasty restaurants to choose from in the Iron Mountain area. There are very picky individuals depending on the area you're in in the UP on which is the well, better it's, one. It's, you can be compared to asking someone from Chicago or New York about where the best place to get pizza is. Yeah. Right. In, in the UP, if you talk to someone from the UP, they will tell you where the best pasties are and they will fight someone to the death. Tooth and nail. <laughs> Tooth and nail. <laughs> about that fact. Now, to that point, and we'll have to go back and find if it's still online, but Nick and I did a, a presentation about this, um, what, two years ago, maybe something like that? A year and a half ago? Yeah. So at the time, we had found there's actually a guy who runs a website that has the pasty trail on it. And it's got all the top spots in every area of the UP to go for pasties. And so if we can still find that online, we'll link it in the show notes. Definitely. So in the area, I know Gene Case is downtown. There's um, Dauber's on the main drag, US2. And then in Quinnisec, what's the name of the one that, that they brag about the lar- having made the largest pasty? I think it's called like the Pasty Place or something. The Pasty King or something like that. Something like that. Um, so anyway, if you go to the UP, if you go to Iron Mountain Kingsford, you have to get a pasty. You have to. And it's just, yeah, if you're in the UP, you cross that border... You're gonna get one. <laughs> it's just the way to, and they're not pasties; they're pasties. Yes, for sure. Don't get those confused. No. <laughs> so, Iron Mountain is an interesting community, and they have several of a couple things. There is an overabundance of coffee shops for the amount of people that live there, and automotive parts stores and bars. And now the bars, Pete's, that isn't really unique for the UP or Wisconsin. That's pretty common no matter what community. But it is weird the number of automotive parts stores and coffee shops they have in Iron Mountain, Kingsford. But a couple of note, Contrast Coffee is a chain that is only in the UP. And their Iron Mountain store is new. I think they started right before the uh, pandemic too, 2019, 2020. Um, They've got some really good uh, uh, choices there. One of the places that has been around for quite a bit is Moose Jackson downtown. I've been going there for years. They've Very got, good panini sandwiches. They've got great lunches, good healthy yeah, meals. Yeah, good choices, yep. Yep. And then there's a, a several like drive-through coffee places. That's a big thing in the UP. I'm guessing it's a cultural thing because of how freaking cold it gets in the winter. People don't want to get out of their car to go get the coffee. <laughs> Fair enough. But um but those are two of the Or they're the, about to go on a long drive to another town. Yeah. So, but those are two of the, the stops I would definitely recommend to grab some coffee. Another place downtown that I think, in my opinion, is the best restaurant in town is Spiro's. It's right downtown across from City Hall. And Spiro, I believe Chef Spiro is still there himself. Great restaurant menu, a cool collection of 
microbrew beers and and a couple other different beverages, but just delicious food every time I've been in there. Uh, make sure to check the hours before you go because it's mostly a lunch place. They kind of keep some odd hours, but it's amazing food. One of my favorites. Circling back to our Italian conversation. Like we said, those Italian settlers brought with them their Italian food and Iron Mountain Kingsford has an odd amount of Italian restaurants yes, for the area. And you combine that with the supper club element, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And it, it makes for some great opportunities for dinner. So uh, we've got, what, what are all the Italian? Ramanoli's. Ramanoli's is a big one. That's on US 2 as you're heading west out of town. I mean, sad to say, some of them are closing. You did have yeah. Fontana's, which yeah. was a big oh. establishment for a while. Great steaks. Fontana's was another time machine. You walk yep. in there and it was 1970. It and was Steakhouse 1970. Yes. yes, it was. It felt like you were in an old mafia movie, exactly. speaking of that thing. Um, they just closed probably four years ago, three years ago. It's such a shame. But yes, Ramanoli's is still great. And there was the one out in the woods, Gina Marie's. But that's changed owners a few times, so I can't speak to what the quality of the food is there anymore. Um, but if you're definitely into Italian food, I mean, there's plenty of places there that you can definitely saunter into and have yourself oh in aurora um next to the steakhouse which we're going to talk about manette no not manette's that's a um supermarket talk about carlos cantina why i look up uh what that place is <laughs> well carlos cantina used to have quite quite the background that used to be the buckhorn then it became uh suds and other where it was a laundromat bar, <laughs> and now it's uh, <laughs> wait, now can it's we Carlos Cantina? Can we linger on that for just a second? A laundromat bar. Yeah, the laundromat is attached right to the bar, and you have an access point, so you can go in and put your laundry in the washing machine, then go have a few drinks, then come out and put them in the dryer, That's and then go have a few drinks. I feel like I would be However, so inclined to do laundry if that was. I believe available. there was a, a fire that disabled that. Specific action from that's, that's a continuing. <laughs> that is fantastic. Um, but Carlos Cantina is there now, and it's a fairly popular place. The locals know all about it. It's been um, around for several years yeah. now, and it's, it's good Mexican food for a place you would not imagine there would be a Mexican restaurant. I mean, for me, I, I've known the evolution of that bar for many years and and to think that many times you thought it was going to close and never reopen but believe you me man there was always somebody right around the corner says i could do something with that place and something was done with it and and that survived for a while and then something would happen and but now you have carlos cantina i think that one's going to stay for quite a while yeah. and the restaurant i was thinking of in aurora wisconsin which is immediately across the menominee river from kingsford is bartoletti's Oh, yeah. Bartoletti's has excellent Italian food. And then also on that little strip in Aurora, there's, there's a few different restaurants and bars. And one of my favorite places, probably right up there with Spiro's, is Annie's TNT Steakhouse. Yes. That is the best steak in the area. Very good. Hands down. And good service, great food, good Funny location. Funny thing about that little stretch was 
there's a there's a gas station right there across yep. the bridge, you know, and, and for many, many years in that gas station, there was a guy there that every Friday would cook fish in there, and it would be a fish fry. Best fish fry I've ever had, period, hands huh. down. And during smelt season, smelt, little tiny fish that likes to run on the UP, and you can catch hundreds of them in a net, he would do smelt, and man, that thing would be overpacked. You'd be so full by the time you were eating all that smelt. It was pretty good. However, the gas station evolved over time, and now it's it's specifically probably it's more of a liquor store. One of the larger liquor stores of the area. That, and I don't mean large liquor, but <laughs> it has a very huge selection. Some uh, one of the best, better selections you can get in the area for sure. And the other restaurant that I uh, was blanking on the name of when we were talking about pasties is the Pasty Oven. That's the oh, one, yes, that's the one the in Quinnesec. Yep. That's the one in Quinnesec. But definitely TNT Steakhouse for dinner is worth checking out. They get busy, though, so get there early. Otherwise, you're going to be waiting for a while, which if you don't mind sitting at the bar and having a few, then you're all right. I've but- never complained about that particular <laughs> problem. <laughs> and it's your classic Wisconsin Supper Club. I mean, they got the old fashions and just the vibe. They actually have two bars there. Because they have so many people waiting at once. There's a front bar and the back bar. I miss the back bar. It used to be Jimmy Buffett themed. That yes. was years ago. Yes, but did, not yeah. anymore, unfortunately. RIP to the Jimmy Buffett bar. We're going to talk about bars a little bit more here in just a second. But I know... Let's see. I, I, I got to throw in a small plug you for do. Bees Cafe. It's, it's right on the corner of downtown Iron Mountain. Very popular place. Very quick turnaround on customers. I mean, it's usually packed in there, but it doesn't take very long to get a seat. I mean, they it's a cafe style, counter style. You go in there, you can sit right at the counter, you can order your food. It's cooked up right on the opposite side of that counter. It's your classic, classic like 50s breakfast cafe. 50s diner kind yeah. of thing, yeah. yeah. But they, they pump out food very quickly. Uh, usually whatever you order, you get right away. And, you know, it's... it's Low wait times, but it is usually packed. I love those kind of places, man. I oh, do. I they're, live for those kind of They're a favorite of, of mine. I'm a big I fan. I love little diners, little cafes, yep. especially when they're family-owned. And that's another thing you run into a lot of restaurants and, and things in the UP, especially pasty places. Is They were started by a certain family many years ago, and it's it's been part of that family for cent- you know decades, I Decade, should say. Sure, yeah, ever since. Yeah, definitely. And one thing, one restaurant we did neglect to mention when we were talking about Pine Mountain is there's a restaurant at Pine Mountain. I think I mentioned there was one, but it's it's pretty cool that the, in the restaurant at Pine Mountain, they have the UP Sports Hall of Fame kind of thing. They've got a, all kinds of famous UP athletes all the way around the top of the, the dining area. And they've had the menu change over the years, but the food there has always been pretty good. So that's definitely another restaurant worth checking out. Famers, it's called, yes. right? Yep. Famers, Famers restaurant. Grill. Yeah. Yep. That's definitely a classic that we've that we've been to several times. And then most definitely you have your standards like McDonald's, Domino's, things like that. <laughs> Not that I'm plugging those places. I was gonna say we don't need to worry about those in this. Some people get concerned they're so far out in the middle of nowhere they're not gonna get some creature comfort no. at home. Well, with so that being said, Iron Mountain just got a Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. So that's I mean those deal. things. Do and there's exist a Taco Bell, areas. right? As long as you yes. got Taco Bell, you're there's good to go. Taco Bell. <laughs> you're yes. good and to go. Yeah. And, I mean, you do have those places. I sure. mean, I'm, 
by no means do I recommend. It is a change though, because I remember from when we were going there years ago, it, it was smaller. It was like slim. it was, you didn't it's have all those games. places. And so just seeing all that stuff creep up, I think in some ways is a testament to how the community's expanding, yeah. you know, Evolving, changing, later changing. hours too, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's Very definitely getting so. more active for sure. And with that, we'll move into our last category, which some of these include food um, because they serve it as along with what they do. Moving on to our last section, imbibe. We're going to talk about local spirits and not the ghost kind. That'd be a different Ooh. podcast. <laughs> so no doubt there are plenty of local spirits as well haunting them. <laughs> don't keep that. Don't let that keep you from visiting. Right, right. <laughs> so first I want to talk about is one of the newer establishments. Marv had mentioned the number of microbreweries popping up in the region. And the first one to show up in Iron Mountain, Kingsford area is 51st State Brewery. And it's, I love this place. It's tucked into a residential Kingsford neighborhood. Small place, uh, but they have some nice outdoor eating. And they now have been producing their own full menu of beers. They probably got, what, eight different varieties of beer of their own that they serve on tap at any given time. When they first opened, I remembered, they would run out. They'd run out of beer. They'd just be all out of beer. <laughs> yeah. And so that was crazy, but they've moved on from that, thankfully. And the other real big attraction for this place is they have the old school wood-fired pizza oven. And even with all the Italian restaurants in the area, I have to say 51st State Brewery Pizza is probably the best in the area. Now, I had several drinks before we finally ate, but I still contend this was in the top five pizzas I've ever had, period. Dang. Which is, that says a lot, because Dan, Dan spent a lot of time in Chicago He's from Kenosha, which is another Italian area. area. For sure. So Dan, Dan, uh, Dan would be a pizza authority. And, you know, one of the things that's so cool about 51st Day Brewing, too, we talked earlier when we were covering the history, how the history is very much alive in all of the areas in Iron Mountain. And this is an example. So all of their beers are named their flagship beers after things in the area's history. So the state of Superior, they've got Batty Millie, they've got the Woody Wagon. Three Vagabonds, you talked about that a little bit earlier. The GC4A Glider, which is like a very technically appropriate name, I guess. And then the Ski Jump. I'll have a pipe to GC4A. Piece. Yeah, yeah. If I can, can I, <laughs> give me one glider. Um, and if then, you can pronounce the beer, they don't cut you off. Disregard the flying <laughs> coffin thing we said earlier. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. That actually be a good name for a beer, the flying, flying coffin. coffin. That is a great name for a beer. And then the Ski Jump IPA. Yep. So covering the whole history of what we've been talking about for the area. I do say uh, try to, if you're visiting Iron Mountain during a non-event weekend, that's when you want to go to 51st State. If it's ski jumps, Italian fest, something like that, that place is going to be packed because it is so small. But boy, their pizza is amazing and they make some good beer as well. Hopefully we'll see some more microbreweries pop up in the area. Another one uh, that we used to frequent back in the day and now they actually expanded into the storefront next door is Soul Blue. And so they have the traditional Soul Blue restaurant, or uh, as you were, the um, bar. And then it started out as kind of a classy place, which the locals in Iron Mountain weren't so keen on. It That's was, why I never was, went It was there. too <laughs> fancy. It was too fancy. Um, so unfortunately, that didn't make it. But when we were first going up there, we were living in Milwaukee. So the big city college boys, we loved Soul Blue. Right. Yeah. Um, and admittedly a lot of the younger women would hang out there so that didn't i mean know, not that that away. would ever yeah, yeah persuade and, us uh, to go but 
And then it's changed owners a couple of times, but now the owners that are there have had it for years and years. And then they expanded into the room next door, which is their tap room, and they have quite a few Michigan tap beers in there. And, and it's a pretty popular destination right downtown in the heart of Iron Mountain. Solberg's is another very popular... I guess if I had to pick the two most popular bars in Iron Mountain for youth, it would be Soul Blue and Solberg's. I've spent a lot of time in Solberg's, <laughs> but they it originally was named Greenleafs when I yes. was there. And, and it's still, but now it's Solberg's Greenleaf. Yeah. And Solberg, uh, they actually started out in Felch. There's a Solberg's in Felch, and that's been there for yeah. ages. And then they bought the one in Iron Mountain. And the intention was to close the one in Felch, but I don't think they ever did. I think that one's still open. I'm not sure about that. But, but um, good food. Yeah, they've got good bar food. Yeah. And they and, have, and it's a nice bar in there. Yes, it's clean. You know, clean. it's not like a dive bar or anything like that. They keep that. it clean. It's the biggest bar in town as far as space. Space-wise, yeah. Um, they have live bands it's good on a regular long basis. Yep. You're into like the long, um, straight bar all the way down. It's a good spot for that. I would say they probably have the most beers on tap in town besides the brewery. They yeah. Quite a, and then they do these uh, tap invasion things where a brewery will come in and put all their stuff on tap. Uh, so definitely for your traditional bar experience or if you like live music or if you're in your 20s or early 30s, Solberg's is probably a place you want to check out. During hunting season, that place gets crazy. Any bar. Well, any <laughs> bar up there, yeah. <laughs> um, now we're going to go back in time a little bit. Yeah, Polly's Underground Pub. Some of the old school hunts. So when I first started going to Iron Mountain in the early 2000s, um, with Dan in tow, yep. uh, we only knew about the bars that my dad knew about, which were the ones he went to like in the 70s. <laughs> and so two of those bars were Polly's Underground Pub and Mamie's. Now, these have changed quite a bit since we started going in the early 2000s. But Marv can speak a bit to the, the origin of Polly's, at least. Yeah, Polly's Underground Pub. I mean, that's, that's been a, a staple for quite a while. Definitely a place I used to love to go. Uh, Polly was an older lady. She uh, was a recovering alcoholic, and she uh, bought a bar to help with that, serve drinks to people, I guess. Um, yeah, it's a very cozy place. It's in the basement of a building. It's very small down there. It's a smaller horseshoe-style bar, so, you know, you do get to one end. You can sit on one side and converse with another person on the other side. It's a couple pool tables in the back. It's very localized, small area. But, I mean, the atmosphere in there is huge. I mean, you're going to get all kinds of different individuals in there. Polly being one of them, that was definitely a reason why I frequented there quite often. Um, she had her own jukebox in there, played her own music. If there was a specific song you played in there, she brought out, like, this crazy instrument she made on a stick. It had, you know, like a drum on it, some bells and things. And, hey, man, she'd go to town on it. That was... But she would never tell you what the song was. It just had to happen, you know? And that was so fun, and, and I know that the vibe in there has changed a little bit. At times, it's been rough over the last several years, but when we first started going to town, that was one of the places where we were totally welcomed. Like, yeah. nobody treated us like outsiders at all. And you could have conversations. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, you'd walk in, you'd sit next to five or six people that you'd never met before, and a couple drinks later and two hours in, the you're... Horseshoe bar will do that. Yep, yeah. You're, you're yeah. deep into it, you know? Yep, definitely. You Lots. can't help but talk to the guy across the way, you know? <laughs> Lots of good times down there, and a little bit of a time machine in itself. Oh, for sure. I don't think it's changed a whole heck of a lot since Polly uh, left there. 
I think her grandson took it over okay. for a while. I'm not sure if he still runs it or not, but... It's still there. I know that much. Definitely. And another one that definitely hasn't changed since probably the 70s is Mamie's. Yeah, Mamie's has been there for <laughs> quite some time. Uh, that, I think, was the bar my dad frequented the most back in the day before he retired back to Iron Mountain. Um, I but don't that's know. that style of bar you think about. That's not... Yeah. You're not talking like college kid bar no. or anything like that. This is... No. When we walked in there, we brought the average age. You know, of if the it bar was the western way down, <laughs> if it was the western days, that would have been a saloon. You know? Yeah, yep, I mean, yep. that's where the cowboys would have went, the cattle rustlers, yep. you name it, they would have been in there. Yep, and that was a little bit more of a local bar, one where when we walked in, everyone kind of turned and looked at us. But I was lucky; I was kind of grandfathered into the community because the male features in my family are pretty strong. So, and by that people, you mean identical. Yeah, and so <laughs> when I walk into a bar in Iron Mountain. People like from my dad's generation are like, you're one of the pummel boys, aren't you? Which, which, whose kid are you? Steve or Mike or Bill? And so I, my, my face was a pass for us, I guess, <laughs> in the community when we were up there and dad wasn't even with us half the time. I so. mean, the locals in the UP will covet a lot of things. Pasties, um, pizza being one. There are different pizza joints throughout the place and everybody believes in their own favorite number one pizza. Bars are pretty big one. I grew up in a small town, graduated with 18 kids, yet this town had three bars on one street. <laughs> All right? I mean, that's... But there was one bar that was for everyone. But the other two bars kind of... They were a bit coveted, you know? You, you didn't go in there unless you definitely knew somebody, you know, or you would feel out of place. That, You know, but that's just the way it is. But they are worth visiting. And that's that's... You know, that's kind of a phenomenon... In this whole area, though. I mean, I I think about that. Wisconsin, especially, there is no shortage of townie bars. And there's a reason for it, right? They really came up as neighborhood establishments. Exactly. I mean, there's some, you know, states and cities that you go to. where you went with your friends and family. Right. And you wouldn't find a bar tucked in amongst houses in, in a regular neighborhood in some areas of the country. But you're... That's totally normal. You, you know, see it all over the place. They have, you know, like a barn dance or a barn party, you know, in the farming communities or whatever. A lot of other smaller places have a local bar. There is actually together. a bar in Iron Mountain on the west side that is, or the north, I don't, do they call it the north side or the west side? Towards 95. Maybe the northern side. Yeah, I think they actually do call it the north side. I've been calling it the west side. But there's a bar that's, or yeah, there's a bar that's in a barn or in an old barn. Or at least it has that vibe. Oh, man, where is that? It's back by that church I was talking about. Which I believe, if Google Maps isn't lying to me, is the Immaculate, Mary Immaculate of Lord's Church. Immaculate. I thought you were going to say Mary Immaculate of Lord's Bar. And I was going to be like, <laughs> That's fantastic. That's awesome. <laughs> um, gosh darn it, I can't find it. There's a bar back there somewhere that... Is it the Hitchin Post? No, that was the one in Aurora. That's in the Aurora, yeah. But yeah. the Hitchin Post they is tore no that longer down. there. Yeah, there. they tore that down. But the CNR in Aurora hosts a lot of bands and bigger names. Um, mm-hmm. And they from do time fish, to time, they do fish fry as well. Yeah, Good fish time fry. to time, and like jackals played there. If you're a jackal fan from back in the day, a newer option for food that I skipped is Smokler's Barbecue. They started with a little oh, like okay. food truck uh, on the north side, but now they're building downtown. They're going to have an actual storefront restaurant. 
Um, another old school bar on the north side, Bimbo's. Bimbo's. That's an Italian bar. They have pizzas and stuff. And then one that I definitely wanted to mention. Yeah, Bob and Jerry's. That's over by Aurora. It's still in Iron Mountain, Kingsford area, right next to the uh, the casting mill there. I can't believe we forgot about Main Street Pizza. Main Street, yeah. Right in Iron Mountain. That's a good pizza shop. And then uh, the Woodward is another throwback bar. It's on that Woodward Avenue I talked about that splits Iron Mountain and Kingsford. And that place has not changed since the 70s either, I think. And uh, Dan, you were, were you in there last time with me? I was there once, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually Kitty Corner from the 51st State Brewing. So you've got a couple options right there in that, that little area if you don't want to wander too far. There are many other bars in the area, but those are just some of the newer, cooler ones and some of the old school historical ones that we wanted to share with you, uh, as well as the brewery and and the brew festival. And and I'm sure there will be more to come in the near future. But that wraps up my entire list of everything I wanted to talk about. Did you guys have anything else we wanted to talk about in this episode? No, I no, don't think so. I think, I think we, we covered, covered it. pretty much everything. I yeah. mean, that, it's a it's a pretty good place. There's a lot of history there, a lot of a lot of diversity and different cultures that uh, roam around, and a lot of places in the UP and any northern state will have that. And it's a great hub too. I mean, you know, if we're going to talk about many of the other areas, you know, throughout this region as we go through these shows, so we won't get too into it now, but. I mean, you can really make uh, quite the experience of using that as a starting place to tour so much of what is in the UP and in that whole Northwoods region. So yeah, it's a, I don't it's think a there's nothing wrong spot. with going back and taking in these areas again, yeah. just taking a look at them and being a part of it, being seeing it, experiencing these places. Well, and with the amount of stuff that we shared... I don't think you could hit it all in one long weekend. No. You have to go twice. Well, and the nice part is, you know, and I think a lot of younger people especially look for this now too, right? It's not commercialized. Like this is not going to be your inauthentic guided this vacation. This is not Wisconsin Dells. Dells, exactly. Say. Like this is going to be a very authentic, like hometown feeling, down to earth kind of yeah. vacation where if you can. If you just want to disappear for a weekend and immerse yourself in a cool town, eat yeah. some good food, have some good drinks. I mean, this is it. Yeah. And like we said, it's not going to bust your wallet in these high inflation times. Gas is expensive. You're not going to have to drive far. It's less than two hours from Green Bay. Even when we were living in Milwaukee, it wasn't a terrible drive. It's a nice drive, actually. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty. for Once you get out of, you know, kind of the major urban areas, like, it's actually a pretty drive. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people that visit these areas, they come back. Oh, for sure. I would say many of the people that we see that are from out of town in Iron Mountain, they come back. They come every year. They come to the ski jumps or every summer they come and stay at a cabin or whatever. They have their traditions. Well, and I mean, to give it, I mean, we've been, like you said, 2006. So, I mean, I've been to Iron Mountain every year in some fashion at some season for what, 12, 14 years. And uh, I still haven't seen everything in the area. You know, so we still experience new stuff every time we go and we have fun every time we go. So we highly encourage you to check it out. Northwoodsdistilled.com is going to be the website you're going to want to check out. We will have some type of link or information on each of these places that we've discussed in the episode and highly encourage you to, to check them out. And certainly we'll have a contact us section on there. You can reach out if you have any questions about the area and we're more than happy to answer your questions. 
as I mentioned in the opening, this podcast is going to come out monthly. We're recording at the end of July. So there's a chance that this will come out in August. If that's the case, then next episode will be September. If not, then um, we'll release again in August. And our next episode is going to be on the Sheboygan, Wisconsin area. And so we're, we're going to try and hop back and forth between small towns and bigger communities. Sheboygan's about 50,000 people. Um, and, and so we'll kind of hop back and forth. And then also between the areas. We're not going to do two UP cities in a row or two Wisconsin cities in a row uh, and so on. So join us next month, be that August or September, for Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Check out northwoodsdistilled.com. And thank you for joining us.